Hey everyone, we are excited to announce the launch of the Curbsiders Patreon. You can join now at patreon.com slash curbsiders. We have been hard at work upgrading our website, expanding our video offerings, recording new sessions of the Teach and Addiction Medicine miniseries, and growing our Digest newsletter. With the Curbsiders Patreon, you get cash-like admitting privileges, and these include all episodes ad-free, including our entire back catalog, twice-monthly bonus episodes with Matt and me, and these include rapid recaps, picks of the week, listener Q&As, and more, you get access to CashSack's Discord server, exclusive Curbsiders merchandise, and advance notice of upcoming events. There is no better way to enjoy a little knowledge food for your brain hole, so visit patreon.com slash curbsiders to join our community and gain CashSack admitting privileges. That's patreon.com slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to Curbsiders, but it's a little different, Meredith. Can you explain? No. JK, LOL. Raffle. Um, yeah, so we're here live at uh, SHM, and by live, this will be recorded for everyone. <laughs> and we're actually live from our hotel room. Yeah, um, but we have, they provided us this extra table, which was really nice. The extra table being an ironing board, so that we could also have this video recording for y'all. Um, and we're live at SHM in Austin, Texas, which is homey for me, so I'm pretty pumped to be here. And I'm pumped it's the first time I've been here, and already got to see the state capitol, which is apparently... I've been told by some people who may or may not be sitting across from me that it's one of the best Capitol buildings in the country. It's pretty much the largest. So, you know, everything's bigger in Texas. I'm aware of this fact. I'm glad that I got that in in less than a minute. Yeah. Well, long story short, we are at the Society of Hospital Medicine annual conference called Converge 2023. And we're just going to start with some clinical updates. This is day one. And we've gotten through the morning session and learned a ton. So we wanted to take a minute to just slow down and share some of those nuggets that we learned. Yeah. Before we jump into that, do you want to give anyone like pics of your week from Austin? Yes, actually. It has not happened yet today. However, you knew that my first one had to be Torchies Tacos. Uh, I love Torchies. I've been going to it for years now, every time I come to Dallas where my family lives. And yeah, I'm pretty excited. Um, I'm a little sad that this morning I didn't wake up in time to go get a breakfast taco. However. We did get a breakfast taco at the conference. They did. It was spot on, much needed, and appreciated to be on theme for the conference. Um, so that was great. Um, and my pick of the week um, on brand for me, being a little sentimental and everything, is got to see my family before I came here. So that's been lovely. So um, like Moni said before, we'll go ahead and jump into kind of some of the stuff we learned during the morning sessions. Okay, so one of the first things that we got to see was a talk on syncope from Dan Dressler at Emory University. And, you know, in the differential for somebody coming with syncopal episodes or suspected syncope, the seizure. And one of the things I don't think I'd ever realized is just how specific tongue biting is for seizure. And so if someone has tongue biting, much more likely to be a seizure than some sort of other syncopal etiology. And then another nugget from the history that's that I don't think I pieced together well is that myoclonus can be from any really loss of conscious state, not just a seizure. And I think 
that's a really big one, I think, especially when we're like going through these sorts of things with our learners on on rounds and stuff. And I think when you're just trying to discern it from like what patients and their families are saying, because like the patient or family, well, the patient obviously doesn't remember what happened, but the family's always like, well, there was, you know, this jerking motion and, you know, gets very concerned about that being a seizure. Um, but actually like that could also be the myoclonus from any other kind of loss of consciousness from any other syncopal event. And the last piece was that urinary continence incontinence occurs equally in seizure and other syncope. So I, these are all things that I, I wish I would have known a little bit more solid before. Yeah, you learn something new every day. Apparently. So, uh, and then I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about PEs when we talk about syncope. So the PESIT trial, which everyone's probably familiar with, but just to kind of run through it, um, Basically, they were able to create a protocol in emergency departments to determine if patients were low or higher risk. So if they were low risk, they just, with syncopal symptoms, they got discharged home. And then anybody else that had suspected syncope, they were uh, given a well score and a D-dimer. And then based on that, would receive a scan. And about 17% of these patients had a clot. And two-thirds of those patients had a large vessel clot. So presumably that's the cohort that would be getting their syncopal symptoms from uh, the clot, which I thought was interesting. That's a pretty big number. Yeah. And I think you and I were talking about this before we started recording, but the 17% from the trial, like I remembered, but I just, until we were sitting in the talk, didn't realize the two-thirds of those were large vessel, um, which just makes more sense to me why those were associated with syncope. In my head, I think I was always like, they're probably just a bunch of sub-segmental PEs and we're like over-exaggerating some of this. Um, But no, like I think that there was like some value to that. So I thought that was pretty interesting. For sure. And I think we're going to round it out with a little bit of talk of the Canadian syncope risk score, which had been studied for a while and then validated um, actually just in the last year. And just to kind of refresh people's memory or for the first time, um, talk about kind of what is factored into the score. So the most important or the ones that give you the highest amount of points are things related to your like cardiac stuff. So an elevated troponin changes in your QRS, either access or duration or prolonged QT interval. Um, also, if you're hypotensive with a systolic less than 90 or a uh, greater than 180, and then uh, things like vasovagal symptoms and heart disease history also give you points. Um, and I think, you know, it's, I don't know if I've really used it. Have you? I've never once used it. Yeah, I'm actually not sure I even knew its name. Mm-mm. Um, but I find it to be like, th- those will make, make sense. Right. Um, but again, like cardiac component to the the score is really what will get you over the hump and put you in a higher risk category. Yeah. And I, I think that like with the scores, I always, um, lose a little faith when it feels like there's a lot of subjective findings in it, but that one had just like a long list of kind of objective findings. Um, so it made sense to me that I got, it was validated and everything. Yep. And that is the Zimmerman study. Um, out of the Annals of Internal Medicine from last year. Wonderful. So um, should we switch gears a little bit? Yes, I think it's time. All right. I'm going to kind of go through some of what I picked up in the heart failure conversation um, with Dustin Smith, also out of Emory. is a very Emory-heavy morning, I guess. Very much so. Um, but I'm going to 
because some of these were actually recently highlighted in one of our hotcakes episode and we can kind of go through some of them like quickly. Um, we just talked on the hotcakes episode about, um, the transform heart failure looking at, uh, torsamide versus furosemide. And really there's no difference between either of them, like at time of discharge for, um, mortality benefit in patients, even though we all think torsamide sounds sexier for the bioavailability reason and what we all go to for our learners. I mean, I say it all the time. Yeah. Um, so I just think it, even though we just recently talked about on hotcakes, I just think it's like worth mentioning again here. For lack of a better word, I just feel like it was a coming out party this last year for SGLT2s. 100%. Like I was sitting during this talk being like, we're going to reflect back on 22-23 and that was the year of the SGLT2s. Yeah. I mean, there should be t-shirts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we talked a little bit about like the, both for Empagliflozin and DAPA for um, preserved EF and the approvals for those um based on the emperor preserved trials. I know we've also talked about these on hotcakes before too, so I won't go into like too much detail about it, but really the benefit while like the composite benefit would was mainly driven by like heart failure exacerbation and hospitalizations and everything, there's still enough benefit for number needed to treat to kind of validate the approval for those um, for preserved EF as well as already proven like reduced EF. So Anyone, regardless of whether they have diabetes, if they have heart failure, the SGLT2s seem to be a good choice. And I think that the important thing that we talked about too was the the fact that like the medication itself is like expensive. And so that does play into kind of one of those downside effects of it. Um, and then the like genital infections as well as being one of the adverse events as well, kind of dictating um, utility of them for some of your patients. So that was kind of the highlights that I found from the heart failure one. Yeah, no, I I think, you know, with the SGLT2s, we always talk a lot about this when we're working about, you know, yes, these studies have shown really great benefit, but also just keeping in mind the patient, like each patient individually, as opposed to just throwing these at everybody. Um, but it's good to have data to back up and support what we're doing. Welcome back, Curbsiders. We are finishing day two of uh shm so we're live uh if the sound's different it's because we're in a different room because we have another member of the recap team today uh meredith want to intro our recap guest yeah i'm super excited to have a great friend and colleague at one time during training one might say she taught me everything i know um so christina do you want to intro yourself Sure. So I would say mentor versus colleague. Uh, I, so I was uh, Meredith's resident. So my name's uh, Christina Sensabaugh. I'm a physician. I trained with Meredith uh, at GW. And I'm now working in a small Appalachia town called Cumberland, where I'm from, from. So I'm a hospitalist there. Christina, really excited to have you. And I think without getting too uh, far off track, because we do that very easily these days, uh, we're going to get into just some quick learning points from all the stuff that we've learned in the last day and a half. Uh, Meredith, you want to start? Yeah. So actually, um, day two, I think it's been really like a lot of really great talks, um, especially for like the clinical medicine and practical clinical medicine. Um, I thought a lot of the talks were really good at like pointing out like kind of high value care type items um, that you can really use and be impactful for your patients. Um, so I know the first one I went to was um, uh, Annie Masser from Emory University uh, did a talk today on kind of symptom 
management for both Disney and Nausea and talked a little bit about, um, spent about half the time talking about Disney and half on Nausea. And I think like, I'll start with the Dyspnea part. Um, the part that actually she was like highlighting was, um, you know, I think that those patients always end up on like oxygen and from our lovely oxygen fairies in the hospital. And even though you don't necessarily have any like documented hypoxia or anything that you've seen um, in the chart and just like a gentle reminder that those like that oxygen is still harmful to those patients and kind of she provided some like useful information on like other tools that we can use to kind of help get them off of the oxygen and reminding them that it is harmful. Um, and she actually like referenced a study by uh, Abernathy and the Lancet talking about kind of like how like, giving patients like air was just as like useful as putting them on oxygen when you're trying to treat the symptom. And so um, there's actually some other good studies to just say like giving them a bedside fan to put in their face um, can actually alleviate the dyspnea pretty well as well. I, I think what's what's really interesting for me is it's always making sure that the patients understand why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, and it makes sense to them, oh, I feel short of breath, so I should get more oxygen. But she really made a good point of saying, here's how you explain that to them. So it's not that I'm taking this away from you. I don't want you to feel good. It's this could actually harm you. And having that conversation with the patient, but then also offering them something that is pretty benign, but can still make them feel better, I think is such a great option. Um, I have so many patients who want to go home on oxygen and I, I truly don't always know what to tell them other than, oh, I can't get it for you. Right. So she talked about blaming those pesky insurance companies. But this is something that means more to patients to say, hey, I want to make you better. I don't want to hurt you. So let's figure out a way to make you feel better, but also not hurt you in the process. Yeah. And I think like, um, you know, she also talked about um, pulmonary rehab being important um, and how we are a little bit better about thinking about cardiac rehab after like ACS or like PEs or things like that. But that pulmonary rehab is actually like pretty important um, and something that we can still refer people to on discharge um, as kind of like another non-pharmacologic like therapy that we're using for patients. I think the other thing, and you're probably going to get to this that I really liked is talking about using opioids in lung disease. And I think all of us, or particularly at myself, have such a worry about giving a patient something that may make them feel better, but could harm them, kind of hearkening back to that oxygen you know, argument. And she was really compelling, and I'm sure you're going to name the studies because my brain isn't that great with that. But uh, she made a good point of if you use low, do low dose opioids, you can still make them feel better, but not hurt them at the same time. This episode is brought to you by Brooklinen. And guess what? Paul and I, super excited to have Brooklinen as a sponsor. Paul, actually, he's had Brooklinen stuff for a long time now, even before they were a sponsor. And I've been hearing about Brooklinen uh, from friends and all these podcasts. My wife was so excited. I got major points for these beautiful sheets and bedding that Brooklinen sent to us. And Brooklinen has you covered whether you're a hot or a cold sleeper. They will get you comfortable. You can get their classic sheets that have that crisp hotel style feel or their luxe sheets with an award-winning softness. And they're made from the highest quality materials and they're built to last. These things have been setting the internet on fire. They have over 100,000 five-star reviews. So we're not the only ones that love Brooklinen. Right now you can shop in-store or at brooklinen.com for a home refresh 
at its best. And for a limited time, get $20 off plus free shipping on orders of $100 plus with the code CURB. That's brooklinen.com code CURB for $20 off plus free shipping. brooklinen.com and code CURB. I think this was someone at the end, like asked the question about at that point where you're starting like opiate therapy for um, dyspnea, you know, you know, should you be having a goals of care conversation? And the answer is yes. Um, So I think starting that conversation early just so that they can start a, at least, even if they're not ready to completely process that on that first time, um, they may be more like accepting of the therapy later when it's been multiple hospitalizations or, you know, whatever is the trigger later. And the studies are actually pretty low dose uh, for total daily dose of like morphine milliequivalents. Um, you know, if we think about for patients who were, you know, giving oxycodone 5Q6, um, you know, you get to 20 milligrams of oxy, it's close to like 30 um, morphine milliequivalents, um, if I did the math right in my head just now. And um, the study she referenced was um, like by Kuro et al. And um, talking about how like actually on average, they only need about 14 milligrams of morphine um, per day, which is about half of what we're usually prescribing. Um, so it's sort of like interesting that I think we're so afraid of it for dyspnea, but we're actually probably need less than we do for like pain as like a um, kind of palliative measure. It's all about what you're comfortable with, truthfully. And so it's always a good reminder to say, what's the evidence behind this? Am I doing the right thing or is it just something I'm used to doing? And, and to go back to the palliative conversation, you know, so many patients live with COPD for so long that I think it's not always conveyed to them appropriately that this is an end stage disease, right? And so it's going to be progressive and it may take your life if something else doesn't. And I, I think I always realize that my patients haven't, don't really always know that. And it's really helpful when you see them in the hospital to not say, hey, you're going to die tomorrow but you have a disease that I can't fix, right? We can at best try to lessen the progression, but this is something you need to know that is going to unfortunately get worse throughout your life. So I think that was a great point too. Yeah. She also brought up benzos because I think that's the other one that comes up in the same conversation and how benzos may be beneficial if you think it's really anxiety-driven dyspnea, but otherwise it really shouldn't be like first line for dyspnea alone um, and can actually potentially worsen the dyspnea if it's not like anxiety-driven. So I just think that's worth mentioning. I think we'll go ahead just for time. The other part that I thought was like really fun actually was in her nausea part, the isopropyl alcohol. (laughs) Um, So spoiler alert, we all talk about like Zofran and which I shouldn't say, Odansetron and um, all of the other ones um, that we use. And, you know, she talked a lot about kind of thinking about the pathways and kind of how you can best um, like maximize the pathways that might be contributing to the patient's nausea, but actually kind of talked a little bit about the isopropyl alcohol. So do you want to like talk a little bit about it? Sure. I can't wait to use this trick. I'm so excited. So essentially, if you have like the alcohol wipes, isopropyl alcohol wipes, you can use those. The patient can essentially like open up the package and sniff those, um, huff, if you will, and it should make their nausea improve. And she she put some compelling evidence there. And, and particularly, I think for this is really helpful for a couple different ways. I mean, one, I'm going to feel like so awesome on the wards when I do this. 
But the other thing is it, and I think Meredith actually pointed this out at the time, it puts the patient in charge of their own, you know, medication and their symptoms. And as someone who recently was in the hospital myself, that's really tough to have to sit there and wait and you can only get certain things. And and so I think it really gives them back some of that, like a body autonomy that you really miss out on in the hospital. Um, but also it can be a good temporizing measure until the nurse can come with whatever you've ordered. And so I, that was my favorite part, I think, of the day today was that that pearl that I'm going to take and use and be super impressive on the wards now. Yeah, I think the way Annie described it in her talk was like you go from like before you use the trick, you're like have your hand on the button calling the nurse because the patient's like actively vomiting like across the room and you have like no control over what's happening and you are like, I can't get into the Pixis and I can't get you any medications and I will just stand here and feel bad for you, but you continue to feel bad. It's just like a there, there, Pat. I'm sorry. I am a doctor. I (laughs) promise. And then now like with isopropyl alcohol, now you're a real healer because you can pull this out of your pocket and save, save a life. I'm really bummed that I missed uh, that talk for sure. But the other uh, talk that um, I think both Christine and I made it to uh, was a combo of dyspnea related diseases, um, not just symptoms, COPD and um, pneumonia. And the COPD one was uh, half was given by Dr. Dan Dressler, who we also referenced in our recap about syncope as he's wonderful. And also again, from Emory. Um, so the COPD section was broken down into uh, basically two different sections. So there was testing that we should or shouldn't be doing. And then there was interventions that may or may not be helpful. So in the int- the uh, testing part, I found it interesting. They There was a study from uh, Watkins et al. in November of 2022. I cannot recall the journal at this point, but it's talking about the VBG-ABG controversy. And basically, this study looked at a bunch of other studies, about 22 other studies. And it found that, you know, based on all of that, that pH um, is generally a good approximation when you're comparing a VBG to an ABG, but much less consistently so in the PCO2 category. Um, and so the mathematical corrections that we have for v- pH are fairly accurate, but for PCO2, not so much. So maybe you should not be using that fully to guide everything that you're doing when you're thinking about like just how sick a COPD exacerbation patient is. And I, I think that was one of the most disappointing things today because probably in most places in my hospital, VBGs are much easier to obtain. But I will argue to some degree, and it's not to say that the CO2 isn't important, but the pH really does drive my decision making too. And so if, if a patient, uh, even if their CO2 is maybe a little bit higher than I might catch on the VBG, I'm, I care more about that pH and their overall clinical picture. So while I, I do think it's good to know that it's maybe not the approximation we thought, I'm happy to know that the pH is still going to help me say, okay, this is time for, you know, maybe some BiPAP therapy or CPAP therapy or whatever we need to do versus, oh, there's no way that pH correlates and I'm going to have to try to get an ABG. And that sometimes takes, you know, lots of negotiation and some prayers if you're a religious uh, in my institution. So I, I was happy to at least see the pH correlates. This podcast is brought to you by Indeed. Think about someone who has changed your life for the better. How incredible would it be if your company could find more of those life-changing people right when you needed them? If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? 
Indeed's U.S. data show over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Here at the Curb Signers, one of the features we especially love is Indeed's Instant Match. Candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in a search, according to U.S. Indeed data. Indeed does all the hard work for you. You sponsor a job, and boom, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring fast. So join over 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. Visit indeed.com slash internal medicine to start hiring now. That's indeed.com slash internal medicine, indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And then the other two, we can talk maybe about one of the two. So ProCal's, you know, always... Always fun, you know, to talk about in every setting, which we'll probably even come back to in pneumonia. But uh, what were your thoughts on what we talked about? The study was Chen uh, uh, 2020. I didn't get ProCal's a ton in in training. And then I think through COVID, it felt like there was nothing I could do or help with. So we started getting ProCal's to say, hey, should we do antibiotics? Should we stop antibiotics? I think it was probably more of a like, helplessness reaction than it was evidence-based medicine. And clearly it's not evidence-based. I think one of the things that I took away from this talk today was that I really need to stop using ProCals. They're, they're not really helpful and they may even be hurting patients if we're using them inappropriately to take off antibiotics or such. So I, I'm not surprised by that, but I, I do feel a little like, uh, Fine. I'll stop. To, I'll stop getting this lab because it doesn't seem to really help in in COPD or pneumonia. Truthfully, yeah, the length of stay um, was the same, and uh, in terms of like using it to de-escalate antibiotics or stopping them early, it did, really didn't change that. Nor did it um, really change any clinical outcomes. So, it's, like you said, like why are we doing this? Right. I mean, I think at the end of the day, what I always try to teach uh, folks that I'm teaching med students and such is that. When we get a test, we want to make sure that it changes our clinical reasoning or it changes our, you know, what we're going to do next. And if we're getting pro cows and we're either, you know, if we're using them falsely, that's very dangerous. But then if we're really not going to change our management, then it just, it's kind of a worthless test and we just exsanguinate the patient more. So um, I think the only, there's maybe some discussion that in a very prolonged antibiotic course, like multiple weeks, maybe there's some use for it. They didn't really get into it today. So no. it doesn't sound like, at least in terms of COPD or pneumonia with relatively shorter antibiotic courses, they're just not helpful. Yeah. And the the little last section of the the part was interventions. And the one that I it's not that current it's from 2017, but um the non-invasive uh, you know, NIPPV um piece, which I I don't think I really thought about, but you know, um Dr. Dressler made a good point. You know, it's probably one of the most underutilized interventions that we have in our toolkit for COPD. And, you know, the the number needed to treat in this particular study was like 12 to reduce one death. Mm -hmm. That's crazy, given that, like, I don't even, it's not even on my radar, right? And they use pH and uh, PCO2 to sort of drive that decision making in that study. Right. And it's interesting because I think 
we were at, Meredith and I were just talking about this uh, where we trained. Uh, we we didn't do a lot of like BiPAP, CPAP on the floor. Um, but then my institution where I am now does. And then COVID also, we really ramped that up. And so that's something that actually we use a decent amount for COPD. So I was happy to see that that's appropriate. So I, I'll get rid of the procals, but I guess I'll keep the, the non-invasive. Uh, therapy for COPD. Yeah. And it, the intubations number needed to treat was five. And then it on average decreased length of stay by three days. Like that's, it's huge. Like, I can't believe I don't think about this more. Did they say how long they were using the interventions? They probably did. I did not write it down. I can't remember at this particular moment in time. Um, I, I think the big thing, and, and this actually harkens back to something earlier this week, is just when you put someone on, you know, BiPAP or CPAP, you just have to be so careful about how they're doing right after that and making sure that you are repeating blood gases because as people can get more somnolent or they're not getting better. But truthfully, I've seen patients wake up in like an hour and you're just kind of like, this is amazing. <laughs> and that's much like pulling out the isoprene, you know, the alcohol wipes. You feel like... I'm a real doctor. It's nice. It feels good. Um, I think that's a good place to switch over to pneumonia. Um, and then we can move on to some other symptoms other than dyspnea. Uh, again, nothing brand new in terms of like the last two years, but, you know, fairly recent guidelines from IDSA for 2019 in terms of pneumonia. Like, you know, the, the biggest point I think that Dr. Bonsall um, from Emory University made was, you know, just taking into account how sick a patient is when you're thinking about treating their pneumonia and like whether or not like what you're covering in terms of antibiotics and stuff really needs to be driven by just how sick they are and what their risk factors are, which like seems like common sense. But I think a lot of times we get like really focused on jetting past that part um, and like just start everything or nothing or something in between. Um, and, you know, I think in terms of what I found to be interesting is like if someone is not really high risk for MRSA or gram negative rods, then you don't really need blood or sputum cultures. And then the other piece that I always find to be interesting, and I just had this discussion with my team when I just was just on service about the MRSA nasal, nasal swab, um, if you recall. So they talk about how like if it's negative, then you can feel fairly confident you don't need to be treating in pneumonia, big caveat. Um, for MRSA, but if it's positive, it's not actually very helpful, <laughs> which were right. It's always, I love getting that test and it's negative and I'm like, Oh, great. I can stop the stupid stuff. And then when it's positive, I'm like, well, I still probably don't think it's MRSA pneumonia. So thanks swab. Um, but I, I think the, the interesting thing for me is once again, stop, you know, not doing tests. And it seems it's like a hard pill to swallow to not want to get blood cultures when someone comes in with pneumonia and, you know, you're putting them on antibiotics and not to get sputum cultures. But but that there is pretty good evidence that doesn't really do anything, particularly if they're not you know septic or, or very sick. So or they don't have risk factors for MRSA or, you know, gram negative rods. I, I think her point, too, about. You know, she had a question that said, would you give this patient ceftraxin azithromycin versus, you know, cefepime and vank? And it was a woman who was pretty ill and you came in from a nursing home. And it's funny in my brain, sometimes I think, well, here's the answer I should give and here's what I'll do in practice. And I think it's sort of saying, OK, but do I really need to give this patient cefepime and vank? Right. I think particularly for me and in COVID, we were probably over ordering antibiotics. I think, you know, that's been addressed. Hospitalists over order antibiotics. But it's hard. It's hard to look at someone sick and say, 
ah, I shouldn't do these really strong antibiotics. But but if they don't have the risk factors, then at the end of the day, that also could be harm, right? You could be creating this milieu that they're going to become resistant to something in the future. So I think it's always a good reminder of treat them and and be very careful. And if she gets worse, then certainly maybe change practice. But there is no age cap anymore, right? We have to think more about that patient's particular comorbidities and what's going on in your community and, and where they're coming from. Yeah. And Dr. Bonsall, you know, made the point, like, be familiar with your own community. Right. And what's there. I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah. Because where she, you know, where she, where she practices, um, definitely MRSA is a much higher risk factor for where, where patients come from. And then just because we haven't crapped on ProCal enough, um, <laughs> I would like to close it out with, uh, we have better information than a ProCal when we're treating CAP, specifically POCUS and CT. Uh, POCUS. I am on the POCUS train after this couple days. Yeah, the study um, in clinical infectious disease from 2019 by Comet et al. just wanted to make the point that like we've got much better information that's not a ProCal that we could be using when we're making these decisions. And I just felt like we needed to round out our ProCal uh, discussion. Poor ProCal. Just a bad, bad day for ProCals. But they had their moment in the limelight. They really did. Yeah. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Locum Story. Everyone has a story. Different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, Locum Tenens should be part of the conversation. How do you find out if Locums is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of Locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from Locum's physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of Locum's and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. The next one I went to was sickle cell pain management. Actually, we don't take care of a whole lot of sickle cell. I don't think any of us do, just kind of as a product of the places that we practice. Um, but I think it's important to talk about because I do think there's like a number of... Um, people who both listen to the show and practice in an environment that has to take care of a lot of sickle cell. Mm -hmm. And the talk was given specifically for sickle cell pain management, not all like sickle cell care. Um, and it's given by Nirmish uh, Shah from Duke. I'm going to kind of highlight like three things. You know, the first that I thought was interesting is that there's a lot of stigma that goes with sickle cell. And one of the things he said is that, you know, in the patients that you would, you know, quote, label as frequent flyers or high utilizers, you know, that's really a product of them having more severe disease. And that that might mean that we need to be a little bit more cognizant of the care that we're providing to them, you know, improve kind of the communication that we're using to make sure that we're really reaching like good kind of goals and plans um, for those patients, which I just, again, near and dear to my heart. So have to mention. I feel like I raised you well. I know. Um, and... The other thing that he said that I don't think about a lot, distraction therapy, especially when they first come in in crisis, is actually um, recommended oftentimes by their outpatient sickle cell provider. Um, and so just because you see the patient, you know, earbuds in, listening to music, trying to get up and walk around, that's part of their, could be part of their distraction therapy. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're comfortable um, for someone who has been dealing with the like illness and birth, um, you know, 
really being clear, like communicating, you know, like how does this feel different and all of that. Um, I thought was pretty interesting and something that I haven't thought about and something he had mentioned is something he has to like educate um, his like nursing staff about at times too. The last thing I'll kind of just like highlight from it is that the guidelines aren't backed by the most fantastic of studies um, for a variety of reasons. And so it's not like any recommendation has like the most strong of evidence um, along the way, which unfortunately then I think is what causes a lot of stress for the hospitalist because, you know, you don't have like the clearest like guidelines to go off of and it ends up meaning that you need a lot of help. So the other thing that I think is just worth mentioning here is that, you know, really he emphasized getting their outpatient provider involved early. Um, I think we talk about this sometimes in our transitions of care parts of like our episodes, but, um, you know, we often think about reaching out to, you know, primary care or like whatever specialist kind of at time of discharge, but he really recommended reaching out to that specialist early, um, like even at time of admission, because they can really help like, you know, they have a relationship with that patient, have probably had that relationship for a long time and have had several conversations communicating um, expectations or, um, you know, whatever goals they had and whatever their pain like um, plan had been, you know, for like their next crisis. And so can actually offer you like a lot of help and guidance. So you don't feel like you're starting from scratch. Um, and so I just thought that was like really helpful to kind of make sure you're framing um, everything right. And I think it kind of emphasizes the need for like really good communication, which ends up being probably the most important part of like pain management. So I think it's a good segue though um, into kind of the last talk that you and I went to, which was um, uh, pain management in the acute setting, um, kind of going through different scenarios with different types of patients that might be coming in with like acute pain. So patient who has an acute pain issue like pancreatitis, but may not have any other underlying chronic conditions all the way to someone who comes in with you know, acute on chronic pain because they have back pain, chronic back pain they have, um, might be on like some sort of long-term opiate and now comes in with pneumonia. Um, and then plus opioid use disorder kind of complicating the picture as well. Um, that was given by um, Dr. Park and Dr. Batiste also from Emory. I think that if I had to pick like one of my highlights from it, you know, they reference the open like portal or whatever you want to call it. But um, essentially they've taken studies that um, surgeons have done kind of looking at kind of what would be optimal um, amounts of opiate therapy someone might need after a particular procedure. Um, and I just think this is like so helpful because how many times do you discharge a patient and you're like, I don't want to over prescribe you. Um, but I don't really have a good frame of reference for like how many pills is that? I just think that's so helpful to like be able to reference something and say like, hey, for the C-section, most of the time they need somewhere between zero and 20. I'm going to assess how much they're using now and then kind of make a best kind of taper plan with the patient in front of me. I, I think it ties into your sickle cell, you know, conversation too. Pain is so hard. I think pain is one of the hardest things to learn as any type of practitioner. And I think it's one of the hardest things to learn in residency and even going forward. And it's to your point. You never want to overdose someone, right? Like even acutely, that can obviously cause death. But but even in the longer term, you don't want to send someone out on too much to put that in this. And she makes this point to put it in circulation, right, for a community. But you also don't want to underdose. You know, you want to treat people's pain. Um, you know, my one of my takeaways from that seems really simple. But I think that 
in training and then in practice, I've really gotten a way of using NSAIDs. And I think it was a good reminder that even low dose NSAIDs really do provide pain relief. And depending on your patient, of course, can be used safely, you know, even in patients with some CKD up to stage three, um, you know, or if you use, depending on the, the manner that you use them or if you use them with, you know, protonics, um, you know, GI prophylaxis, you really can be used safely, particularly in an acute setting. And then hopefully you won't have to use an opioid in, in a particular subset of patients. I think that was a good reminder for me because I jumped to opioids thinking, oh, I don't want to use NSAIDs. You know, I, they have all these complications. It's not to minimize those, but I think evidence-wise, you can use them safely at lower doses. Yeah. And I thought, um, I mean, one of the reasons I really like pain management is because the number needed to treat is actually so low to reduce like pain level. So it just feels very satisfying. So I know you were impressed by your number needed to treat of like 12, but we're talking about number needed to treat of like one and a half to two. Boom. So it's just like super satisfying. I'm feeling very ganged up on right now. (laughs) As you should. Um, so yeah, like I agree. And I think like, um, they had like the data for like even an ibuprofen of like 200 milligrams, having, um, the ability to have like a number needed to treat around two, which like was to decrease, um, pain levels by 50% in the hospital. So it's not insignificant. I mean, if someone is like at a eight, you've kind of decreased them to a four. So it's not like nothing. Um, I'd be pretty satisfied with a four, um, in my patient. Maybe not for myself. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then I think the other point that I want to highlight from that is um, in your patients who come in with concomitant like opioid use disorder who might still be, um, you know, either actively using injecting drugs or like even if they're just buying whatever off the street, um, it doesn't really matter. Um, one, you know, everything these days is contaminated with fentanyl. So like they're probably on much higher doses essentially of the opiate than we even had to deal with five years ago. Um, but also just to remember, like treat them for their opioid use disorder. You will have one much more like comfortable patients, um, not trying to like get up and leave the hospital, um, before they're like medically ready and, um, they'll be more comfortable and be, I think, a little bit more trusting too of like the healthcare system. Um, So just kind of framing that and making sure that we're doing that. So if that's with low dose methadone, like that can be like a great option and not just doing like some baby tramadol. That that was the favorite part of the talk for me. I come from an area because I'm in Appalachia and our opiate use disorder population is is unfortunately increasing. Um, so I see a ton of that. I see so many patients who come in who, you know, are using drugs and using opioids uh, before they come into the hospital. And then they either have, you know, they have some acute illness and then maybe they're going through withdrawal and they also may be in pain from whatever brought them in. And so you can't ignore, you know, this other disease just because it's difficult or you don't like it or whatever your personal feelings are. And to your point, you know, those patients leave against medical advice. It's safest for them to go through withdrawal and also to treat whatever pain they may have on top of that and their disease state. You know, that's better for everyone. So I think it's a good reminder that um, these patients can certainly be challenging, but there are ways to tackle this, to treat them for more than just whatever acute problem they have, because there's so much else going on. And it's so important to do all of those things for them. Yeah. Um, and then I'll just shout out like, uh, for curbsiders addiction medicine, they had their series, which had like a lot of, um, great information kind of talking about a lot of both opioid use disorder as well as like everything else. Yep. 
Okay, well, uh, I think that's good for day two, ladies. Any other things we want to talk about before we close it for today? And, you know, day three is upon us. Yeah? Yeah. All right. We'll see you then. This episode is brought to you by Grammarly. An audience, you know, at work recently, I've been thinking a lot about the tone of written messages because there's been a couple things that happened. Uh, Somebody got bent out of shape over a chat message or a patient got bent out of shape over a portal message. And guess what? Grammarly might have helped save that because Grammarly's new advanced tone suggestions, they can help you communicate confidently and they can reframe your words in a way that's more like positive or collaborative productive and paul has talked about this before he could really use some help with his tone sometimes when he's sending messages he could be a little bit hard to read over text and that's where grammarly can come in grammarly can really help you strike that balance between being direct and friendly while also trying to find solutions Plus, as you know, Grammarly has spelling and grammar, punctuation. It can also help you with conciseness. Remember, the right tone can move any project forward when you get it just right with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash tone to download and learn more about Grammarly Premium's advanced tone suggestions. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash tone. All right, Curbsiders, we are back with the last recap of SHM, the third day. We have learned so much. My brain is feeling nearly fried, but not fried enough to where we can't give deliver an update. So one might say we're delirious. Oh, wow. What a segue, Meredith Trubit. I know. I'm surprised I could come up with that right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... We have just kind of last day is sort of a half day. So we have um, just like a few uh, talks that we went to um, to update about. Um, I'll start, I guess, on the segue of delirium. Yeah. Um, This talk was so good. It was given by Ethan Cumberland out of the University of Colorado. Um, It was super engaging talk. And he actually kind of designed the whole talk around how historically we used to bloodlet patients and how that also helped their delirium because that would make them unconscious at times and so <laughs> sedate them. Oh. And then use that kind of into his segue talking a little bit about other medications and things that we use that actually really don't have any evidence either now. Um, but we want them to because we all have stories of, you know, the patient who is delirious at 2 a.m. on like haloperidol you he got it that patient got the dose and does better throughout the night and so but really there's no good evidence for any of the medications that we use and did a good job i think at explaining that there's no evidence for that we shouldn't be using them um and all of those things but i think he did acknowledge that what sometimes you have to do from a practical standpoint because safety becomes an issue might end up being a different conversation. And that's really kind of outside the scope of like guidelines or studies or anything like that. Um, And obviously what you have to do on a patient by patient basis is a decision you have to make with an N of one um, kind of going forward, which I appreciated. And then he also talked a little bit about um, the 3D cam scoring system to determine if patients are delirious. Um, And 
I think at some point I knew this. I just kind of forgot. He was like, you know, this is, you know, has a sensitivity of 95% and specificity for of 94% for delirium, um, which is largely also the score is based off of the, the DSM criteria. So like makes sense that yeah. it like works that way. For sure. Um, so I just thought that was interesting as well. Um, and then one other study uh, he talked about, which we'll um, include in the show notes, was of early mobility to improve delirium outcomes. And 30% of elderly patients have like initial orders for bed rest. So you're really not promoting like early mobilization. And then the other common one that we all do as hospitalists is um, ad lib, a bad lib. I, you know, I'll be honest, I can't, I probably at some point knew exactly what that meant, but. Well, he told us it's um, at one's pleasure. And um, they actually did this study where they put GPS monitors on um, elderly patients who had that as their activity order yeah, to see how much they were up and about. And it was a total of like 43 minutes a day. So that meant that 97% of their time they were immobile. So not really like the order probably doesn't mean as much as maybe other um, low cost interventions that people could be doing. So I thought all of that was kind of interesting. And I know you went to like the geriatrics updates. I'm yeah. sure there's some overlap. Yeah, there's a fair amount. Um, I think always going back through the cam stuff is helpful because especially when you're talking with residents and stuff and they're trying to figure out if somebody is like acutely sick versus delirious. Like I still remember like the first time I dealt with delirium as an intern on night float and uh, was very terrified and then realized, Oh, this is what delirium is. And yes, I need to be concerned, but I also don't need to think they're dying. So one of the things that was a big take home from Dr. Sarah Bradley's talk out in Northwestern for geriatrics update uh, is that the beers criteria got some updates in 2022 most of the updates are really just like having stronger recommendations than they previously had and stronger language. For example, using caution and rivaroxaban in patients over other DOACs for long-term treatment because it's got a higher bleeding risk. Avoid warf warfarin as initial therapy for VTE and non-valvular AFib, also a higher bleeding risk. Um, and one of the language changes that's impressive is avoiding sulfonylureas as a whole um, more class driven than it is they used to just name specific ones and um, now they're basically giving a class uh, recommendation against using them and then um, for limiting the use of long-term ppis which i feel came up in multiple talks this conference um, they added language specifically in the rationale so the biggest um, complications we worry about are pneumonia, C. diff, fractures, and renal impairment. Uh, again, pneumonia creeps back up. <laughs> um, and I, actually, this is going to come out before what I'm referring to, but it'll come up in uh, one of the updates episodes that we do with uh, Rahul Ganatra and uh, Heather and I. So, but yeah, those are the biggest ones. And then I've found it interesting that the United States Preventive Task Force also put up some new recommendations in 2022 uh, around things that I think elderly patients really will probably be a little irritated with because they, you know, really want patients to decrease 
uh, supplementation intake. And I know how, you know, a lot of elderly patients are, they love their supplements. So they recommended against beta carotene or vitamin E for the prevention of cardiovascular disease or cancer. And they said that there's insufficient evidence to support multivitamins in prevention of cancer and cardiovascular disease. So uh, the grandmas are going to be upset. No more Centrum Silver. But that's just for prevention. So yeah. Like malnourished or anything right. else wouldn't fall into that. Okay. Right. But yeah, I think there's a fair amount of patients that. Save them some money, though. Yeah, for sure. Those are the things I really wanted to highlight out of um, the Jerry talk. What else did you learn today, Meredith? <laughs> The next one that I went to was electrolyte management by Brad Sharp. Um, talked a little bit about potassium, magnesium, phosphorus, and calcium. Um, and just going to kind of highlight some of the things that I found interesting. Um, so on the hypokalemia part, uh, he talked a little bit about some quality improvement measures um, that he's done at his hospital. And it looked like he kind of pulled the audience. It looked like um, some other hospitals have done this, but um, for shifting with insulin and glucose. He said that about there's been studies done that about 12% of patients will actually get hypoglycemic during that. And I think that's something we've all seen. And the quality improvement thing that they've done is actually like include a specific order set that accompanies like the insulin glucose shifting so that you're um, able to like kind of titrate how much dextrose they should get based on their like pre-intervention blood sugars and then same for the insulin kind of just thought that was like interesting something I've actually like never thought about that much um I'm always just like here's some extra dextrose you can take <laughs> um and kind of hope for the best but um it is like kind of I think a nice high yield probably quality improvement um option out there and then on the hyperkalemic side talked a little bit about sodium polystyrene um and how because of the bowel necrosis conversation, we've started to move away from that, especially with the introduction of some of the newer agents. Yeah. Uh, but there's really not like that great evidence for the bowel necrosis. And so you really have someone who um, is admitted and like has hyperkalemia, but really doesn't have like other abdominal complaints or anything that it's probably still a great option in the sense of like high value care uh, for just like the cost differential yeah. between that and yeah. the newer agents. The other ones I think probably are a little more effective from like just anecdotally I've heard, but definitely they're very expensive. Yeah. Um, so there's no head to head studies comparing any of them. So you, you don't know that like one is more effective than yeah. the other either. So, it, you know, I think that there is value and, you know, we've used that agent for like a long time. It's yeah. somewhat predictable in that yeah. way. So we probably shouldn't be, swinging the pendulum quite so far to go away from it just because we have these newer agents um, which is just something I think is always a good reminder for all of us and then um, the other thing I just going to highlight like that kind of was across the board for all of them was just along those lines like when you are thinking about repletion you know oral is always going to be a better option because of the price differential and the gut does pretty well with like absorbing uh, a lot of these electrolytes and so if unless there's some reason that the patient can't take PO to really consider like oral electrolyte repletion um, I think sometimes when they're in the hospital we jump to IV just because yeah it's there we are thinking it's easier but um, sometimes it's like not as comfortable and the cost is like literally cents to like 
20, $40 per um, infusion. Yeah. And um, specifically for potassium, you know, you're giving 10 MEQs and a hundred. So he also brought up that like, by the time you've done 40, you've almost given them like a half liter bolus. And so a volume is also an issue. Um, sometimes that can, that should be playing into our consideration. I know more than I think about it. So that's kind of the stuff I wanted to highlight from that one. Yeah. Um, we had another great talk from uh, Scott Katz at Henry Ford. Um, he's a hospitalist who just loves anticoagulation and the periop stuff and did a great job of running through a lot of current studies or newer studies about this stuff. Um, I'll just highlight a couple things that I found to be interesting as someone who probably doesn't do as much periop as uh, some other hospitalists, but one thing that he pointed out from the 2022 chest guidelines um, was patients on mechanical valves with AFib, well, the bridging conversation always comes up. The guidelines say no. However, they also give you some considerations and for patients that are high risk. So basically any CHADS VASC risk factors are risk factors um, that you should consider as patients that are high risk. And those are ones you should consider bridging, which I think we all kind of have moved towards anyway. But it was nice to see that this is being put in like formal guidelines because this is something that comes up later on um, in our episodes that we've done so far. Uh, and then always fun, uh, DOAX and dialysis, uh, the level iteration as Meredith knows, and the study from Cohen in 2022, one was not particularly helpful, I would think, because they talked about CKD patients and that there was less bleeding in a Pixaban than warfarin patients, but they didn't use INRs to drive any of the warfarin patients. So I think it's kind of hard to know what to do with that information. Um, and then in general, the shift with patients that have AFib and CKD and meet criteria to be on anticoagulation, um, you know, there's been this like, it's taken a while for them to get in any data really to support DOACs, but it seems that the data is moving in that direction. Uh, maybe not quite to the point where it's going to be formal guidelines, but the data does seem to be moving that way, which is helpful, I know, because we all have been on the DOAC train for everything else for a long time. And, you know, those nephrologists, they takes them a while to get to places sometimes. So uh, I think the last one I wanted to highlight um, was, it, I think it's relevant to, to people even who don't do periop, um, more like as a consultant for surgeons or neurologists. So the Reno Extend trial, um, basically they were looking at and patients that are on any sort of anticoagulation that have AFib and then had a stroke. Um, and basically their intervention was, do you change what they're on or do you not change? And uh, the answer is, uh, there really wasn't a lot of difference. Um, so changing it probably doesn't really help. And then to note, adding aspirin to whatever they were on, increase your bleeding risk. So don't do that. They can say that fairly, fairly confidently. So um, those were kind of the anti periop, anticoagulation related things I wanted to highlight. Um, and I think that we're planning on doing a full episode at some point. So be on the lookout for that. So I think the other one we missed from actually day one was Heem's stewardship with um, Lenny Feldman gave the talk. Uh, longtime friend of the curbsiders. Yep. And I'm actually just going to highlight, I think, two things from this. It was a lot about uh, like in general, like periop anemia. But I think the two things that I just don't think a whole lot about is and probably because like you said you and I don't do a ton of periop um but just 
remembering that like repleting nutritional deficiencies in your anemic patients um, can be fairly helpful um, to optimize them preoperatively. So including like iron B12 and folate, but also like repleting zinc and copper. I don't usually think about those other two. And so um, I just thought that kind of optimizing that had shown benefit, um, mortality risk benefit for in the periop stage. And then the other thing that I think blew like kind of everyone's mind at the end was we were talking about um, FFPs and IR and everyone's favorite topic. But um, what was surprising to me is, I mean, through training for me, through everything I've always read, you know, FFP administration, when their INR is between 1.5 and 2, it's just, there's not going to be much change. You're like, from a practical standpoint, you're just giving them extra fluid. But pragmatically, like in the hospital, I've never been able to convince someone to do something. Um, and they're the ones doing the procedure. And so I don't feel like I have much um, leg to stand on uh, for some of these more like invasive procedures. Uh, however, um, Lenny had actually brought up that the interventional radiology guidelines have a cutoff of two also. Um, oh, the plot thickens. not 1.5, which I just like, I think he pulled the entire room and everyone, he was like, does anyone have like an IR department that does this? And like, no one raised their hand. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know that it's like practice changing at the moment but it's interesting that it's like literally in the their guidelines too for some of these more um invasive um procedures yeah and then i think it came up also like in suchita's talk and stuff that like we should not be looking at inrs for like diagnostic paras and those things too so yeah um i just think that that's a good reminder for most hospitalists out there yeah the last one i went to today so coming back to day three was um severe infections um in patients who inject um iv drugs uh, this was a joint talk given um, by Tracy Vitis out of Emory and um, David Sirota, um, who's actually was the guest for us um, on our endocarditis episode, um, which is a great episode. So I recommend everyone go back and listen to that if um, they're interested. It goes into a little bit more detail um, specifically for the endocarditis part than this talk did. Um, but he's at the University of Miami. And really, I'm just going to kind of summarize the talk. I don't know that this is so much new information if you've listened to like the addiction medicine series. Um, but in general, like please treat, you know, opioid use disorder concomitantly uh, with their underlying like infection that they may have come in with and um, make sure that you're coming up with like a plan of action that you as the provider, any consultants, but mostly, most importantly, the patient um, is on board with. Uh, to kind of increase uh, likelihood for treatment. Um, and then I just wanted to um, kind of mention this other part. I think this came up. I don't remember if it was like during our recap part yesterday, but just again, highlighting transitions of care a little bit. Um, they mentioned like a study from Lure and Eastwood from 2021 talking about um mortality in patients who leave the hospital um, with like infection from their injection drug use. Um, and it, if they had a planned discharge, they have a four times 
is likely rate of um, mortality in the first one to two days, just because kind of no matter what we do to treat, you're decreasing kind of their tolerance that they were at before. Um, and that doubles to like eight times the risk if it's a patient directed discharge. So what some of us might say like against medical advice or before medically advised, whatever um, your pre preference for phrasing is. Um, I like patient directed discharge though. That that one seems like a winner. Yeah. Um, and then still like just a doubled risk for um, mortality through 14 days post-discharge regardless of um, other uh, reasons. So I just think that, you know, these pa this population is like high risk and we just need to be like mindful of that. Um, and then went through a great kind of recap of um, harm reduction techniques and uh, recommended kind of the harmreduction.org website to both help find linkage of care and other resources in your local communities to help um, these patients. Great. And we'll round it out with some GI. Uh, Dr. Don Sears um, gave a great updates in GI. Some of these are going to come up between the episode we do for uh, the updates in hospital medicine and then also um, the great episode we recorded with uh, Dr. Sada from Duke. Um, but I'll just highlight a few. So the waterfall study um, basically looked at, you know, moderate versus aggressive hydration or fluid repletion in pa patients with pancreatitis and, you know, something I think a lot of hospitalists suspected came came to fruition, which is aggressive volume repletion leads to a um, increase in volume overload. And it was actually stopped because of the harm that it was doing to p patients, which is pretty rare. So another thing that's kind of coming down the pipeline um, is called elastography. And uh, it's a modality to help you kind of decide, does everybody really need to have an EGD for variceal like bleed assessment or variceal development in patients with cirrhosis? And um, in addition to like these, the pressure, the kilopascals, which I have not thought about since I basic science. Um, the other thing that we did not get to highlight in our liver episode um, was just like looking at platelet counts actually is a good marker of portal hypertension potentially. So um, basically like less than 150 um, in patients in general and then NASH patients specifically less than 110 platelet count um, is something to consider um, for portal hypertension. And those are kind of criteria to use in determining if someone really needs that EGD. And then one of the take homes that the, the speaker really wanted us to take into account was um, not maybe like study driven necessarily for, for liver disease and alcohol, um, alcohol consumption. But, you know, since the pandemic started, alcohol consumption has skyrocketed and has really led to, you know, all the bad things that come with that. Um, and including an increase of 179% of, of mortality in care for um, alcohol-related issues for women specifically. Um, and really just kind of like encouraging us to think about like building community as opposed to, you know, what alcohol tends to be used for and especially in hard times. And I know it's not the most study-driven or data-driven, but I did think it was a point worth noting that like there are always interventions that aren't medical or whatever the help with the stressors and stuff that we're dealing with. And then I'm going to bring it home with a shout out to our own things we do for no reason episode. Cause she rounded out with that too, which is NPO at midnight does not need to happen. Okay. 
um, in patients that are, you know, low risk procedures, um, there's, you know, eight hours for a big meal, six hours for less big meal, and then two hours before for clear liquids. It was, it was heartening to hear a gastroenterologist say this. Yeah, I bet. Because <laughs> uh, it's generally us hospitalists that are having that conversation without, you know, the support of our subspecialists at times. And so it was really heartening to hear. I think that's all the updates I got. Um, I guess because this is the end. Um, just wanted to shout out SHM. I think you and I had a really good time this week. Uh, it was a great conference. They put together like a really great lineup of speakers. And we mainly focused on clinical updates for the show, but they had a good mix of some other talks too that looked interesting. Um, and so just had a really great time. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Sounds like tacos. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And as Curbsiders, we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Meredith, just, it's been a great time, the two of us hanging out, learning a bunch of stuff. Um, We produced and wrote this episode but as usual, you know, uh, we can't do this without Podpaste, um, who are in charge of all of our editing needs, which, this episode. which is, <laughs> yep. And, um, you know, just everyone involved. So until next time, I've been uh, Moni Amin. And I've been Meredith Trubit. Thank you and good night. Good night.